Hey, listen, it's good to see you this morning. Uh, I want to talk to you about a concept today and use a word that I don't think a lot of us use on a regular basis. The title of my message this morning is Subversionary. Subversionary. And you're like, what does that mean? It's an adjective used to describe someone who's intending to subvert or overthrow, destroy or undermine an established or existing system, especially a legally constituted government or a set of beliefs. So you're like, well, who's subversionary? And I was just trying to think about, okay, this concept. It's like we don't use this word. We don't really totally understand what this means. So I was thinking, who is a group of people in our world who are subversionary? And I think I found the perfect example. Babies. I have never met a set of new parents who say, this is exactly what I was expecting. What do expectant parents believe about their lives before babies? They believe that the baby will only require them to make minor adjustments. They believe that their life is actually going to look like the Christmas card they sent out this year. They believe that they're only going to lose a little bit of sleep, but overall they'll be fine. They believe that the baby's nursery needs to look like it could be featured on Pinterest. Wives believe their husbands actually know what to do with a crying baby. Husbands don't even think about crying babies. So what actually happens when babies show up? It takes 41 minutes to leave the house. It used to take you the amount of time it took to tie your shoes. Now it takes the time to pack for a European vacation. It takes 80 minutes to watch a 30-minute TV show because you used to be able to just sit there and watch the show, and now the baby needs something every three minutes. Three hours of sleep is a blessing. You talk to a new parent, you're like, how are you doing? They're like, I slept awesome last night. I got three straight hours. That nursery you just had to finish before the baby came, was this you? Was this you? Was it, were you the ones who were like, I just, we got to get this baby or this nursery done? You don't even go in the nursery for the first three months because that baby sleeps in your room. You just walk by the nursery and you're like, what's that? We've never been in that room before because you're totally delirious. This seven-pound human being needs 12 different contraptions that you don't have the floor space for. Like, how does seven pounds need so much molded plastic? Your calf muscles, when you have a baby, get enormous because all you're doing is this with the baby, trying to get it to stop, to stop crying, and you can jump through the roof when you're done. You send out a Christmas card, and you, people are like, oh, look at that really cute kid or this really happy family. You're a liar. The baby only looks like that when it took your picture. You know what a true Christmas card should look like for new parents? A wife holding a baby at 3 in the morning with the husband sound asleep next to her. That's an honest Christmas card. Amen. You're right. Amen. And all the moms said amen, and all the dads are like, oh, yeah, you did that too, Joe? Yeah, I did that too. Babies don't come to bring joy. They come to bring subversion to your life in every detail. But there is one baby who was far more subversive than any baby in history. The most subversive person who has ever lived. The one who comes to destroy preconceived beliefs and undermine existing systems is Jesus Christ. But oftentimes when we hear words like destroy, undermine, and overthrow, we think of people who are cruel and rebellious and violent. And if you know anything of Jesus, that is not him at all. However, it's very easy for us, especially around Christmas time, as we worship sweet little baby Jesus in the manger, to really forget who we're dealing with. 
It's easy for us to Americanize Jesus and think of him as an idealized version of a Republican president who came to put liberals in their place, stabilize the economy, secure our nation and its borders, and make sure we remain a world superpower, and that Jesus agrees with most things that Bill O'Reilly says. Or maybe you're on the other side of the aisle, and you think Jesus is the one who comes to make sure everyone is free to express themselves, and fairness was his highest priority, and that providing money and raising minimum wage for the poor addresses all of their needs. And I would say, welcome to the club of missing Jesus completely, all of us, both sides. Go to Matthew chapter 12, now that I hope you're offended. Go to Matthew chapter 12. You'll be way more offended throughout the rest of the message. It's going to be good, but you'll be a little angry. And just remember this as you're listening this morning. If you have a God who never disagrees with you, he's probably not God. You are. So just put that in your mind this morning. Like some, sometimes after I preach a message, a couple people will share with me, whether it's through an email or whether it's you know, in person or I hear it secondhand, they'll say, do I have to agree with what Joe says? And I'd say, you don't have to agree with what Joe says at all. You do have to agree with what God says. And I just want to challenge you when it comes to issues in our culture and the, your worldview, if God is never disagreeing with you, you aren't worshiping him. Matthew chapter 12, we find Jesus just after he starts to be publicly rejected. He had just healed a, a man with a shriveled hand on the Sabbath. And for the first time in the Gospel of Matthew, the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they're trying to find a way to kill Jesus. And every time there was a, the Pharisees were trying to find a way to kill Jesus and they wanted to arrest him or hurt him, he withdrew. And this is the story we find in Matthew chapter 12, 15 through 21. Aware of this, aware of what, that the Pharisees were plotting to kill him, Jesus withdrew from that place. Many followed him, and he healed all their sick, warning them not to tell who he was. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Now this is a prophecy from Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 4, and here's what's wild. This prophecy, many scholars say, was originally about the nation of Israel, and yet... Matthew is applying this prophecy to Jesus Christ. And so this is the prophecy that Jesus fulfills. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love and whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he leads justice to victory. In his name, the nations will put their hope. Would you bow with me in prayer this morning? Holy Spirit, come and do the work that only you can do. Open up our hearts. Open up my heart. Lord, help me to say what you want me to say. Help me to be like Jesus, full of grace and truth. Lord, you know I need grace this morning. Lord, we all do. Lord, meet us here. Lord, whether there's people here for the first time or the 101st time, just meet us where we're at today. You love us, Lord, and you see us as we are, and you're patient with us. Give us open and pliable and hearts that could be molded. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen.
Jesus is not American. The vision that you may have of Jesus as a powerful white man is wrong. The first thing we learn about Jesus is that Jesus subverts our perception of power. Many Jews and even non-Jews thought that when the Messiah showed up, he would lead something like a political or military revolution. Kind of like a Norman Schwarzkopf, just skinnier and more divine. This is the reason why a storyline in the Christmas plot or the Christmas story was that King Herod was committed to killing Jesus. Because remember, when the wise men came, they went to the palace because they thought that this king was to be born, would obviously be born in a palace. And when they showed up to talk to Herod, Herod's like, hey, when you eventually find this king, let me know because I would like to meet him, a.k.a. slaughter him. So part of the Christmas story is that Herod decreed that every boy under two years old be murdered. We've never talked about the bloodiness of Christmas. But why would Herod want to kill every two-year-old boy and under? Because he thought this new king would be a threat to his throne. This is what people were expecting from the Messiah. This was the reason why there were moments in Jesus' ministry that he left the crowds because they wanted to make him king by force. However, when we look at Isaiah's words about Jesus, we don't get Israel's political or military hero or a president. We get a servant. Jesus did not exercise power by force, manipulation, political alliances, and campaigning. Jesus shows us that he came as his father's deeply loved son and servant who was dependent on the Spirit's power to bring justice, not just for Israel, but for the nations. The justice that Jesus brings to the world is a justice of grace and judgment. This is the kind of justice that rights every wrong and restores everything to how it should be. Jesus is interested in making all things new and restored for every nation of the world. It's not just for insiders, it's for outsiders. Jesus did not come to make the lives of just one group or nation better. He came to serve the whole world. He didn't come to build an empire through conquest. He came to serve everyone. And even more subversive, considering all the power Jesus had, it says that he will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. Jesus was not looking to have a debate, build a constituency, or resort to lying, spin, and mudslinging. Were there moments when Jesus silenced his opponents because of their hypocrisy? Yes. Were there moments when Jesus modeled righteous anger in the face of religious and social injustice? Yes. But Jesus spoke with dignity and with control and with love and with truth. And Jesus came to crush his only enemy, Satan. Though Jesus was the king of kings, he was also meek. Some people think that the word meek is synonymous with being a wimp. Meekness actually is the picture of a wild stallion that is strong and bold and powerful that has been broken. Meekness is strength under control. What did Jesus' meekness allow him to do? Serve other people. Love his enemies. Wait for God's will to be done in God's timing. Allow Jesus to be quiet and humble and gentle. Jesus' meekness made room for the Spirit to work quietly and without fanfare. Here's what's strange to me. Sometimes we equate the Spirit's power with very, very, very big productions. 
and Jesus models for us that the Spirit, who, who, how did the Holy Spirit flow through anyone more in human history than Jesus? That hasn't happened. And what's strange is, is when the power of the Spirit flowed through Jesus, it wasn't, look at me, let me start a TV show. It was quiet and it was behind the scenes without much notoriety. Jesus' meekness allowed him to be a servant. How subversive is this way of leadership? If we are going to be subversive people like Jesus, if we are going to see the world with the eyes and the heart of Jesus, our value system can't be the same as the world's with Jesus' name attached to it. The way Jesus subverts our perception of power should call all of us to reflect on our own leadership styles, how we get things done in the world. It should cause us to consider our worldview when it comes to power and political parties as if this spirit-empowered servant fits fits neatly into the box of Republican or Democrat, conservative or liberal. Jesus does not come to take sides. He comes to take over. It should cause us to ask the Spirit to search our hearts no matter what kind of leadership role we have. Are we Spirit-empowered servants who don't need our ego stroked, that we can serve meekly wherever God has put us? Are we meek in our interactions with those we oversee, whether it's at work or in the home or with your spouse, wherever you are leading and have authority? My question for you today, is it strength under control or is it leading by power and force? Or do you lead through dependence on the Spirit? Do our hearts yearn for the nations to know Christ? Or has our patriotism blinded us to the Great Commission? Jesus subverts our perception of power. Not only that, Jesus subverts our perception of people. It says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Reeds were tall, fibrous, flimsy plants that grew plentifully in Jesus' day. And reeds could be used to make measuring tools and pens and certain kinds of paper. And reeds were even used to make flutes so that shepherds could play music to soothe their sheep because apparently sheep like flute music. But that's what reeds were for. But because reeds were common and plentiful, as soon as they were damaged, they were trashed. And when the wick in an oil lamp would start to smoke and would only give off sparks and there wasn't much light, what would normally happen is you'd throw the wick out and put a new wick so the lamp could burn brightly. Every fall, my family and I, we go apple picking at least uh, Two times, we, we like to pick apples, and when I say we, I mean Cheryl, we like to pick apples. And, and what's amazing is, is that as you walk through an apple orchard, there's these really beautiful apples on the tree that everyone wants. And along the ground, you'll notice that there's apples lining every tree. And you know what's amazing? I have never once thought, you know what, I think I'm going to pick those up. Those are going to make a beautiful pie later. Why don't you pick them up? Because they're laying in the dirt. They're bruised. Some of them are rotten partially, and no one is paying $1.17 a pound for bad apples. But when Jesus comes into contact with people who are bruised, who are smoldering, who the rest of the world has ignored, discarded, and forgotten about, he shows them love and compassion. Jesus sees people whose lives can be described as bruised and battered, and he opens his arms up wide to them. Oftentimes, I don't know if it's just me, but oftentimes we determine if certain people are worthy 
of our time, attention, and resources. Oftentimes we catch a glimpse at the vulnerable and weak and we prefer not to learn more. Oftentimes we try and insulate ourselves from people who are broken because we just don't want to get messy or take time to help them clean up their mess because by all means we are radically individualistic and if you made the mess, you clean it up. Oftentimes we expect people to get over their pain faster than the grieving process allows. Oftentimes we expect people to get over um, their hurts and those things that they're going through that we really can't understand and we don't really try and understand And instead of understanding, we try to explain their pain away instead of entering into it. Oftentimes, we see hurting people, and instead of our hearts breaking, we assign them blame for their hurt. Oftentimes, the people we are running from, Jesus is running towards. This morning, churches across our denomination... We're part of the Assemblies of God. We don't wear that on our sleeve. It's not in our name. We don't rally around our denomination and say, we're an AG church and that's really what we're all about. If you've noticed, we're all about Jesus. We're all about rallying around the cross of Jesus Christ and saying that every man, woman, and child needs Christ. That's our rallying cry. But we are happy to affiliate with the Assemblies of God. And this week, our superintendent, who oversees the uh, American Assemblies of God, has asked every Assemblies of God church to take a moment out of their service to recognize that black lives matter. As I was thinking about Jesus as the one who doesn't break bruised reeds, I was thinking about so many of our African-American brothers and sisters across our nation who are hurting this morning and are bruised in light of the events in Ferguson, Missouri, and New York City, and countless others. And now I know many of us may be tempted to make these moments about autopsy reports or self-righteous disdain for rioting and convincing ourselves that these are isolated incidences. I know we may be more interested in discussing our justice system, fatherlessness, and making this a socio-political issue. And all I'm here to say this morning, Spring Valley, are you willing to cut through the rhetoric and love the bruised reeds? Too many of us, too many of us want to talk about issues and not people. Too many of us want to post blog posts about people who agree with us and not realize that there's families and communities in mourning. Too many of us want to feel self-righteously comfortable that we actually may not see the world clearly. We may not, our experiences may have not exposed us to the realities of different people groups. So I'm here this morning boldly and humbly to call us as a church and as the body of Christ to repentance. And before you say, I don't have anything to repent of, you need to know that in the Bible there are multiple examples in Joshua, in Nehemiah, in Daniel, of corporate guilt, meaning that it doesn't mean that you may have done something personally, but you may be part of something that is failing to live out the way of Jesus. And just so you know, repentance is a call to change our minds. I'm here to call us to repent of our proclivity to minimize the pain of others. I'm here to call us to repent of our preference to discuss issues instead of realizing that many in the black community are bruised. 
we'd prefer to walk by the apples in the apple orchard that are on the ground and just say, well, you probably got yourself there. Get yourself up. I'm here to call us to repent of our shameful Facebook posts that don't reflect the love of Christ, but rather are pitiful attempts to make the pain of entire communities seem easily explainable and insignificant. I'm calling us to repent of our indifference to the injustices right in our own backyard. I'm calling us to repent of mentally and emotionally and politically and socially and economically and spiritually discarding bruised reeds without even considering their reality. I'm calling us to repent of our failure to listen when people are telling us they are hurting. I asked a friend recently to share her perspective on the events that have transpired in our nation. And she kindly wrote me a very long email about her perspective as an African-American woman about what's happening. And as you recall, as we went through the book of James over the summer, that James calls us to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. I just want to share with this with you as a perspective. So before you tune me out, just inviting you to listen to a sister in Christ. As a child, we were called the N-word. Our property was vandalized, and the other children were told not to play with us. As a young adult, it was customary to be followed by store detectives immediately upon entering a store. It became a game with me and my younger brother to make them follow us all over the store. We would laugh so hard because we thought that it was so funny. We weren't upset about it because we didn't know any better. It was just a way of life. How sad. It wasn't until I was an adult shopping with a white girlfriend who became very angry about the fact that I was being stared at and followed while we shopped that I realized that white people, for the most part, are unaware of how black people are treated on a daily basis in America. I also noted that when confronted with the truth about it, that they became very uncomfortable, almost as though you were blaming them personally. I've even had an experience with a white police officer at Logan Airport in Boston. I asked him for directions to a gate, and he pointed to where I needed to go and called me stupid. With such a nasty look on his face, I didn't understand it. I was dressed appropriately. I spoke proper English, but it didn't matter. I was still black. So what does this have to do with Ferguson, Missouri? The sad truth is that behaviors really haven't changed. It's just that the media is making us look at it whether we want to or not. And once again, it's making white people uncomfortable because they feel like they're collectively being blamed for the actions of some. I think that the officer spoke disrespectfully to the young men walking in the street. Michael Brown responded with disrespect, and it escalated from there. A young man is dead, a family is in anguish, and the, police and the police officer will never live in peace again. The people are not angry just because a young man is dead, but also because there is an unwillingness on the part of the majority of white people to admit that there is a serious racism problem in this country that needs to be addressed. They're angry enough because they are not being seen as important. They're angry because people say it's a low-income community and you know how those people are. They're angry because other police officers may feel emboldened to mistreat African Americans because they won't be held accountable. They're angry because they're without hope that anything will change in their world. I don't have the answers, but I know that simply respecting one another is a beginning. Please understand that racism is not just a white thing, it's a people thing. 
For African Americans, it's born out of pain, fear, anger, and mistrust. I don't know where it comes from in white people. Maybe that's something that you can share with me. And I would just share back. It's probably the same exact things. Jesus wants to subvert our lives this morning so that it can look like his life. This week I was thinking that sometimes when we think of sin, we make it too complicated. How about we just think of sin as a failure to be like Jesus? And when we fail to embrace hurting people, when we fail to acknowledge their pain, when we fail to understand why people do what they do, we're not treating bruised reeds the way Jesus does. We'd like to snuff them out and throw them away. Jesus comes to show us that power is given to serve others, that if we hope to accomplish anything at all, we will need total dependence on the Spirit, that people matter, that hurting people aren't a political or a social issue, they are a love issue. Jesus comes to bring hope to the whole world. Jesus calls us to look beyond ourselves and go into all the world with a better message, a greater hope that Jesus is for you, that Jesus died for you, that Jesus will put your life back together, that Jesus will defeat death for you, that Jesus can restore what's broken, that Jesus is not done with you, that though you're bruised and beaten, Jesus shows up. And at the end of history, Jesus wins. What will stand in the way of our message? A lack of love. A lack of love. Why am I so passionate from this pulpit for some of us to get out of the political rhetoric? Because you are silencing the gospel because people don't hear love. And Jesus Christ loves people. He loves people. And people aren't issues. They're image bearers of the living God. And he went to the cross for every single one. Hope is not a concept or a character trait. Hope is a person. And he calls his people, his church, to be the embodiment of the hope and the love that's in him. Do you love like Jesus loves? Do you care like Jesus cares? Is your heart stirred with compassion in your gut like Jesus' heart was stirred in his gut? This week, I had an incredible experience of the love of God that I want to share with you. Talking about how Jesus opens his arms wide to bruised reeds. On Monday night, Cheryl and I were at the table. The kids had gone to bed, and we had discovered something that my son Joseph had done that we were just exceedingly proud of him for. And so the next morning I got home from the gym and I am drenched and I smell like a locker room and no one really wants to see me when I get home from the gym because it's just gross. And I said to Joseph, I said, hey buddy, come up with me. I want to talk to you for a minute. 
And he comes up, and I'm sitting on the edge of the bed, dripping, smelly, gross. My hair's everywhere. And he's sitting on the floor, and I said, Joseph, I said, last night, I was so proud of you, I wanted to come in your bed and wake you up and give you a hug, but I didn't want to wake you up. And then I said, buddy, I'm so proud of you right now, I just want to give you a big hug, but I'm all sweaty and I'm all gross. And my son looked at me, and he said, who cares? And I got the biggest bear hug, all 60 pounds, seven years old, with his entire body wrapped around mine, hanging on for dear life. Through the sweat and the stench and the grossness. And in that moment, I wasn't hugging my son because I was proud of him. I was being reminded what the radical love of Jesus Christ is like. Don't ever forget that your story, if you're a Christian, is that Jesus found you when you were gross. And he told you that he will not throw you out and he will not snuff you out. And he wrapped his arms of love around you. And if you are not a follower of Jesus or maybe you're kind of doing that dance with God where you're sort of on the periphery and you just think he's angry with you and you just think he wants nothing to do with you, he's willing to take you today in your mess. He sees your bruises and he knows your pain and he wants to give you the biggest bear hug you've ever had. He wants to embrace you. And for those of us who are followers of Jesus, this is the life of a Christian, the life of love, the life of not just receiving the acceptance we've always wanted, but showing others what it's like through the way we love them. And some of us are like, does that mean truth doesn't matter? You're totally missing the point. Of course truth matters. But we love. We love the hurting and we love each other. And we show the world that the kingdom of God is here. And in the kingdom of God, we rise above the fray of the media and the social issues and we see the human heart and we say, my father loves you. And my father cares about those hurts. Will you have the Father's heart? I would encourage you this morning. Don't stay in your sin. Don't stay in your sin. Jesus comes to subvert your entire life, your presuppositions, your cultural preferences, your political allegiances. And he says, let me show you a new way the way of the kingdom, the way of grace, the way of truth, the way of love, the way of servanthood. In the kingdom of God, we're not looking for titles, we're looking for towels. Who can we serve? Who can we love? How can we be like Jesus? That's all I got today.
We've ended early for, I think, the first time that I've been the pastor here in history. So here's what I'd like us to do. I'm gonna pray, and when I say amen, you're free to go. I'm gonna ask our prayer partners to come up. If you wanna take a few moments and just ask the Holy Spirit to search your heart, maybe there is something in you that isn't right. Maybe this sermon reveals that there are seeds of racism in your heart. Like I've discovered in the past, there are seeds of racism in my heart. And it's only Jesus Christ who can eradicate that. All I'm calling you to be this morning is honest. Honest before the Lord. So if you gotta go, no problem. But if you'd like to spend some moments just reflecting Vinny will play until 11.15. We have 10 minutes just to hang out. When I say amen, you're dismissed. Prayer partners can come when they're ready after they've taken time that they've wanted to with the Lord. Let's pray. Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his kingdom and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Father, we come to you this morning. And Lord, we confess that maybe it's not this issue that we talked about at length today, but maybe it's just other people in our lives that we've seen their bruises and we've run. Lord, I repent for my own sin. I repent for the times that things have grown in my heart that don't at all look like Jesus. God, I confess this morning that I need you to renovate my heart. Do your work, Lord. Holy Spirit, speak to us. Do the supernatural work that only you can do. In your name I pray.